The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, dedicated to helping you experience all the benefits of time outside and stay more comfortable while you're out there. From soft and breathable activewear designed to do it all, to just the right layers perfect for changing weather, to sun-smart clothing that blocks the sun's harmful rays, every L.L. Bean product is made with comfortable time outside in mind. Visit LLBean.com to shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. One and a half million acres of shallow water marine habitats, freshwater marshes and prairies, saltwater wetland forests, and pine and hardwood forests provide refuge for threatened and endangered animals in the Gulf of Mexico. The green sea turtle, American crocodile, West Indian manatee, Everglades snail kite, and piping plover all depend on critical habitat within Everglades National Park. 1.3 million acres of the park is designated wilderness, making it the largest subtropical wilderness in the United States and the largest wilderness area east of the Mississippi River. Historically, water flowed from the location of modern-day Disney World through the Kissimmee River Valley south to Florida Bay. The extremely flat landscape was known as the River of Grass, and it supported abundant plants and wildlife with a range of habitats. In the late 1800s, people began to drain the Everglades for agricultural, residential, and commercial development. Canals, roads, and buildings displaced native habitat, and wetlands were either filled in or drained in the process. Congress authorized an enormous system of water management infrastructure called the Central and Southern Florida Flood Control Project in 1948. This project drained half of the original Everglades, but allowed the region to flourish economically. Without the Flood Control Project, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach would not exist as we know them today. Yet, even with increased water infrastructure leading to economic success, residents, commercial businesses, and tourism depended on clean water from the Everglades. Even coastal fisheries depend on healthy estuaries that will deliver clean, fresh water to the coastline. The efforts to protect the region from hurricanes and make it more habitable have negatively impacted the health of the Everglades. Conservation leaders across the region recognize the need to make a change. Congress established the Intergovernmental South Florida Ecosystem Restoration Task Force in 1996, which was made up of state, tribal, and local governments. The task force's three strategic goals for restoration include water, habitats and species, and the environment. The Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan hopes to address these goals by improving water quality restoring habitat, and protecting native species. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, Restoring the Everglades. One of the largest threats to the Everglades ecosystem are invasive plant species. A native species is one that is naturally found in an ecosystem. Exotic or non-native species are those that live outside of their normal habitat range, usually because humans have carried them there, whether it was intentional or not. Not all exotic species are able to thrive in the landscape they're transplanted into, but the ones that do are called invasive species, which spread aggressively and may even outcompete native species for food, water, and sunlight. Many things can lead to the spread of exotic species, 
and humans can accelerate it by planting landscape ornamentals, agriculture, and medicinal plants. Invasive species become the most successful when they are able to outcompete native species. Florida's southern mild humid climate makes the Everglades especially vulnerable to invasive species. Of the 1,000 plant species in the park, more than 220 are non-native. But funding is limited, and park managers need to prioritize the plant species with the highest threat. These include the Brazilian pepper, Australian pine, lather leaf, and old world climbing fern. So why do we try to manage invasive species? Well, every ecosystem has a special ecological balance between plants, animals, soil, and water that has taken thousands of years to develop. Invasive species often don't have natural predators to control them. Without the natural balance, invasive plants can displace the native plants by stealing moisture, nutrients, and sunlight, which will also cause an imbalance of food for animals that depend on them. Imagine managing one and a half million acres of land. Your job is to then locate and remove invasive species in the park, which has remote areas with lots of open water and no roads. What would you do? In the Everglades, there are three major challenges to dealing with invasive species. Size of the landscape is one, of course. The immense size of the park makes it hard for crews to find and treat all the exotic vegetation. Accessibility is another. Remote areas of the park are difficult to get to without roads and dense vegetation alternating with the open areas of water. And most of the park is legally designated as wilderness, which restricts motorized and mechanized activities that would surely make transport and species removal easier. Finally, most conservation projects today are limited by funding. Once invasive species are removed using chemical or physical methods, managers may leave the area to recover naturally or take an active part in its restoration, like planting seeds or moving in native plants. One project is aiming to restore wetlands on abandoned farms in Everglades National Park. It's called the Hole in the Donut Restoration Project. The Hole in the Donut is 6,300 acres of former agricultural land within Everglades. Farmers grew wintertime crops that could be sent north where it was too cold to grow vegetables. Brazilian pepper plants were used as a cover crop during the off-season to control erosion. After farming in the area stopped in 1975, the pepper spread to become the dominant plant in these sites. The park, Miami-Dade County, and the National Park Foundation have partnered in this effort to restore wetlands in the heart of the Everglades. In a precedent-setting program, cooperation with Miami-Dade County, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Hole in the Donut was established as an in-lieu fee project and wetland mitigation bank. This means that the development projects happening in nearby Miami-Dade and Broward counties that would have unavoidable impacts to wetlands can apply for mitigation credits to purchase. The funding from those credits goes to restoration efforts happening at Hole in the Donut. This project was the first in-lieu fee project and mitigation bank in Florida and the only one in the National Park Service. Restoration began in 1989 and park managers work each year to permanently remove invasive exotic species, monitor progress, and restore a self-sustaining native ecosystem. David Etman subcontractor at Hole in the Donut. And so what we're gonna, what, what we're doing is the edges in some places, particularly on the, where they interface with the natural area is not distinct and clear in all cases. And so we have to kind of walk it and discuss it. 
they tried all kinds of things back in the beginning to restore HID. And they tried plantings. They tried, they tried just simply chipping and mulching like what you guys are doing out there. And they tried burning it. Mm-hmm. But the pro, again, that soil, if you don't get all, it just creates a situation where the, the natives are just not competitive. Jonathan Taylor, project manager of the Hole in the Donut Restoration. When I, when I look at this habitat uh, and I reflect on what was there before and the diversity of the native plants and flora that were there before, and I look at what we have here, um, it's regrettable uh, that we've lost the habitat that we've lost. Once they cleared off the vast majority of the bulk soil and vegetation, they followed up with graders and with sweepers and uh, were able to sweep up the loose rubble and they've done just a, a very good job. I couldn't ask for a better final scrape. This is the most exciting part of what I do. It's, it, and once it's all over, that's the most rewarding part because then I can kind of point to a, a, a real tangible accomplishment. Well, I see a beautiful white flat surface. That's what I see. Uh, I see a, a lot of work. Um, uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time bringing down uh, the Brazilian pepper. We have the intact Brazilian pepper stands over here uh, in, in front of me. And then, of course, behind me, um, we have all of the area where the Brazilian pepper has been removed. And it's taken, you know, approximately two months of effort, uh, lots of equipment lots of man hours to get that accomplished but uh, it's done now that we've done this now that we've exerted this level of effort to remove the soils generated through farming we can sit back and watch the native species colonize the site on their own in 2018 the mitigation costs at hole in the donut were more than twenty-seven thousand dollars per acre of restored land as of 2020 6,063 acres have been restored at hole in the donut with only 237 to go my name is Larry Perez and I'm a ranger here at Everglades National Park and we're standing right now at the very border of Everglades. Off to our right hand side we've got a fairly large stand of pine rockland that marcates the northern border of the park whereas down south here we've got a canal area and this canal area sits right alongside the boundary line. This is important for the topic of discussion today as we talk about invasive species. As we know, typically invasive species, biological invasions, are what we call perimeter effects, meaning they invade areas from outside. And so typically we'll find that areas like this canal are perfect avenues, highways for introduction of all sorts of different taxa, non-native taxa, into these islands that we've preserved as national parks. As we've seen, invasive species and the problems they cause in the ecosystem are a real concern for Everglades National Park, but the problem doesn't necessarily stop at our borders. Instead, as much as we'd like them to, invasive species scarcely respect the political boundaries we lay out on the landscape. So managing this problem in South Florida really mandates that we work across agency lines. The National Park Service works in concert in the Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area, an agreement that allows us to pool our resources and our expertise and coordinate our efforts alongside other federal agencies, 
other state agencies, NGOs, universities, and tribal governments to really bring this fight to the forefront and keep ecosystems like those here in Everglades National Park healthy and free from invasive species. Managers currently right now are thinking that uh, we're tracking about 350 species, that's plants and animals, that have either proven themselves already or shown the potential to become invasive species just south of Lake Okeechobee, 350 species. And the interesting thing about that number is that it never decreases. Instead, it always augments. Every single year we get one or two new organisms in our ecosystem that we then have to account for indefinitely. You know, of that 350 species that we find down here and that we monitor down here, we've got a pretty abysmal track record for those that we've been able to eradicate. Once an invasive species becomes established, it's incredibly difficult to physically remove them permanently from the ecosystem. We have a handful of success stories, but even those that we've been able to eradicate need constant monitoring after the fact. And so that number, that 350, continues to increase year after year. It's a treadmill that never really stops running, and we're just trying to keep pace with it. Animals can also invade a new landscape. In Everglades National Park, lionfish and Burmese pythons are two of the highest priority targets for land managers. The lionfish is a venomous predatory fish that is native to Indo-Pacific waters. It was introduced into Atlantic waters as early as the 1980s. Lionfish stings are rare, though they do pose a hazard to humans in addition to the native wildlife. Lionfish feed on larval and juvenile file, which can impact population growth of fish that are important to fishing industries. They also compete with native predators such as snappers as they feed on larger fishes and crustaceans. Lionfish are currently the only known invasive marine fish recognized to be established throughout the Caribbean. So far, only a handful of fish have been removed. Once a management plan is complete for the Everglades and Dry Tortugas, Researchers will identify key areas in Florida Bay that will be continually monitored for lionfish so they can be removed. Snakes from all over the world have also been turning up in the Everglades. The Burmese python was established in the park likely because of the accidental or intentional release of captive pet animals. Research shows that the severe decline in mammals in the Everglades is likely due to the growing population of pythons. Estimating exactly how many pythons are in the park is challenging due to their camouflage and behavior. Because this is the first time on the planet that a large constrictor has been introduced to an environment because of the pet trade, park managers need to rely on new scientific research to guide management and removal efforts. The problems caused by Burmese pythons in the park remind us that the removal of species is much harder than preventing their release. There is a lot you can do to help fight the spread of invasive species if you are a pet owner in Florida or anywhere else. Remember that some exotic species require a lot of special care, so do your research. Be aware of any laws and regulations, and if you can no longer care for your pet, find someone who can. Don't let it loose in the wild. You can also report sightings of non-native species to engage a rapid management response. There's something for everyone at Everglades National Park. Opportunities for biking, fishing, paddling, and wildlife viewing abound. If you're willing to get your feet wet, slough slogging will take you off trail into the wilderness. And ranger-led programs are a great way to learn more about the plants and animals that call this park home. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and written by Lindsay Taylor, whose blog, The Curiosity Chronicles, can be found on the webpage for this episode. The audio clips come from the National Park Service. 
If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen over at the Sea America Podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.